You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Please find a Bible as you can and uh, find your way to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be looking primarily at three verses today, verses 5 to 7. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. I want to start today, um, before we get directly into our text, I want to start today with a quote by J.I. Packer on really what is setting up our passage today. So this is a bit of a wordy quote, okay? So I need you to kind of sit up straight and get your minds ready to listen. There's going to be a couple of big words in here, but I'm praying that you're going to receive it. Otherwise, I don't really want to give it, all right? But here's what J.I. Packer says about the incarnation. He says this, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us. Now, here's where he takes a term we wouldn't expect, okay? So the profound mystery when it comes to the gospel does not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement. It almost sounds heretical at this point, right? But let's just stay with him for a second. Nor does it lie in the Easter message of resurrection. You're like, what's he talking about? How could he say that? The mystery of the gospel is not found primarily or most in the message of Good Friday Atonement or Easter message of resurrection. He says this, but really the supreme mystery of the gospel lies in the Christmas message of the incarnation. Now let's find out why he says that. Here's the next part of this quote. He says this, here in the incarnation are two mysteries for the price of one, okay? So the supreme mysteries found within the incarnation alone in this way. The first one is this. The first supreme mystery is this. The plurality of persons within the unity of God. So one of the mysteries that we see before us as the Christmas event unfolds, as the incarnation unfolds before us, is the reality of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and this one God, three persons, eternally existing as the perfect harmony of the Godhead, they decide that the Son is going to be sent to earth. So in the incarnation, we see the Trinity unveiled in a way that has never been seen in this way before. It's a mystery. How do you fully explain one God, three persons in the incarnation? It is awesome. It's supposed to hurt your brain, okay? The second mystery is this within the incarnation, the union of Godheadhood and manhood in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what Packer's saying. The reason the incarnation holds the supreme mystery, because within the incarnation, not only do you have the Trinity being revealed, but then you have the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, who comes as fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man, again, cause minds to explode. Packer says this, it's here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas. And this is really our whole text today. This is where we're going. That the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. Let me just say that again because that's a lot of words, okay? He's saying within the incarnation, what I love about this church right now is almost everyone who's been here for the last couple of weeks, if you were asked what is the incarnation, you could do it. Unless you've been sleeping, some, right? right? But almost all of you could explain the doctrine of the incarnation in some way that would be beneficial for those who are asking. That is awesome, okay? And now we see this, though. The incarnation is something we can never fully articulate and explain with ourselves because it holds the most profoundest and most unfathomable depths within the Christian message and the truth that God has given us in his word. The incarnation, it's incredible. It's astonishing. And in many ways, it's ultimately a mystery. Again, this is why the entire world is centered on this event at Christmas time. Because when Jesus Christ was born, when God the Son came to earth, it was the single greatest turning point in all of history because the Word became flesh and God became man. So loved ones, this is when we must discipline our minds and our hearts. And I would suggest to you this week as much as any, disciplining ourselves in the chaos of our world. It's hard to do this. I know I, I live in the same world you do. We must discipline ourselves in mind mostly this week because we're going to see this through our text today. The mind affects everything we do, what we believe, but let's discipline ourselves that Christmas is more. Christmas is more than 
chestnuts roasting on an open fire. As much as that is great, and even as you say it, you're like, oh, that just, that just feels good in some ways. But it's more than, Frosty the Snowman, you better believe it's more than that, right? It's more than dreaming of a white Christmas. We have that, right? At least for now. And we'll see what happens, right? But it's more than a partridge in a pear tree, thank goodness. It's more than a one-horse open sleigh. It's more than rocking around the Christmas tree. And Christmas is infinitely more than Santa Claus is coming to town. No offense, Santa. Kind of, right? Rather, Christmas, the incarnation, again, it contains the profoundest of most unfathomable depths within the Christmas message. So here's what we're going to try to do today. And this is, this is really not a sermon that is going to be necessarily, you know, the cutest or the funniest or the one that's maybe the easiest to hear for someone who's looking to be entertained. That's not going to happen really at all. But it will contain, I believe, some of the most important truth you'll ever hear some of the most important truth for us to reflect upon and sit upon and say this world's not about us. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ. And to be able to let that sink in a little more that the worship of our lives would grow and the minds and the renewal of our minds would increase and the affection of our hearts would be stirred as we contemplate the reality of something that ultimately we'll never fully understand. So we're going to try to swim in these seas of unfathomable depths today. We're going to seek to put our spiritual scuba gear on today and maybe by God's help, dive a little bit deeper than we have before. Why? Because as we dive down, we are seeking to discover a treasure that lies in the depths. A beauty that is not often seen in our world again with its chaos, but it's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ found within the incarnation itself. Because when we do this, we put on our spiritual scuba gear and we dive down and begin to see and get out of the busyness of the world, what happens here, that Jesus Christ becomes more And as Jesus Christ becomes more, we become less. And that, loved ones, is the will of God for your life and mine. As John the Baptist said in looking at Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. So that's why our message title then this weekend is this, the incarnation, incomprehensible humility. At the end of the day, it is a humility that is ultimately incomprehensible, but we're going to try, but we don't stand a chance apart from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that God's word is truth? Do you believe that right now God wants to speak to you? You know, I just, I love relying on him because I can't. I'm just going to confess to you again a couple hours ago before I came to come here, just looking up to the Lord in anguish of different sorts and saying, God, you know, I can't do this again. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't do it, but you can, and that's why you're God, and that's why we're not, and listen, that's why we pray. That's why we pray. Father, so gladly bow before you in this moment, so gladly surrender my heart, and I pray the hearts of my brothers and sisters here even now, so gladly getting ourselves in a posture of humility for the one who demonstrated a humility, Lord, that we can't begin to fathom, but I do pray, I beg you, That even today, right now, Lord, for every heart that is here and listening, you would open up just a little more and allow us to go a little bit deeper to see again with a greater appreciation and beauty the reality of why we live and who it is we live for. Oh, God, would you open up the treasure that is found within your kingdom, the treasure that is found within the mystery of even you and the Godhead. Oh, Lord, would you allow us, not that we deserve it because you love us so much, proven again and again through the mystery of the incarnation itself, that you would, Lord, now, even even now, Cause us, Lord, that we might decrease, that you might be increasing in our lives, our worship, our affections, Lord, and the things that we say and how we think and the lives that we ultimately live. Holy Spirit of God, the word says, searches even the depths of God. You are the one who knows all things. You can search into the unfathomable depths of the incarnation. And so we pray by your grace and mercy and kindness, you would reveal to us just a little bit more today and we would be so blessed because of it. We pray this with, with all sincerity. Father, we, we are not talking to a God who does not hear. We are speaking right now collectively to a God who loves and listens and longs to change us. And so I believe in this prayer right now, and I pray many, many of my dear loved brothers and sisters are in agreement and truly praying this time will be supernatural. Oh, bring a unity that is of you and cause us, O oh Lord, to know, to know again the power and the grace living in us and between us, that we may have a purpose and a mission as much as ever for all that matters most. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice that. Have, your, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now verse 6 who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, and being born in the likeness of men. Now what we're going to do today with our text is we're going to use verse 5 as a hinge verse from what comes after verse 5 and actually what is before verse 5 as well. We're going to use verse 5 as a hinge verse because that's what we believe it is. So think of a hinge um, on a door frame. Think of how the hinge is the connecting point between the door and the frame. Without the hinge, it's pretty hard to have a door that works properly, if at all. But the hinge is a key, key element that allows, again, the door to function And attaches the foundation of the frame so that both can function together. The hinge is very, very important. It forms a bridge of sorts. It's a transition. This is what verse 5 is in our text. I'm praying like me this week. You will see the glory in God's word again. How much there is in God's word. And verse 5 then being a hinge verse for primarily verses 6 and 7 for us today. But also it kind of draws us back to verses 2 to 4 as well. So we're going to start being pushed forward or pulled forward in verses 6 and 7 with hinge verse in verse 5. But then at the end of this message, Lord willing, we're going to be pulled back by this hinge verse and take a look at verses 3 and 4. A little unorthodox for expositional preaching, but I believe it's right. I believe this is what even God's Word is telling us in not so many ways as well. So here's our hinge verse. Again, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now notice, have this mind. Mind. Why the mind? Well, the mind is so critical. The the mind is what we understand, and the mind then is what we apply, and what we fill our mind with then is how we ultimately live. We've showed this chart at various times in various ways, but I've always Loved it. This is one of the top five principles of my biblical life. And I pray this would be one of your top five biblical principles of your life as well. The power, the reality, the essential nature of how we use our mind. Here's why. What you fill your mind with, and by the way, this is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Loved ones, it matters what we fill our minds with. Why? What you fill your mind with is what forms your thoughts. It's just very basic. It's very logical. And then what we think about ultimately will determine what we, how we behave. So fill your mind, form your thoughts, forge your behavior. It all starts in the mind. What are you filling your mind with? What are the things that you are thinking, talking? What are the things that you are reading? What are the things that you are watching? What is the content that's coming into your mind? Because whatever you fill your mind with, young people... Old people will form your thoughts, will then forge your behavior, and then notice what you start with your mind. In the end, that's where you'll find your fruit. This, in the end of the day, this will become who you are. Everything starts here with what am I filling my mind with? This is why then the mind is everything. Again, I cannot tell you how often I think about this truth. I cannot tell you how many mornings when I wake up, I'm not going through the Word of God so I feel better about myself. I'm going through the Word of God because I need the shower of my mind. I need the renewal of my mind. I need to know what God says because if I don't know what God says, I'm done. I'm dead. I can't make it, and neither can you. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. There's so much application to this as it relates to Christ as our example, as it goes back to the model of what Paul says we are to be as the unified body of Christ. 
And we're going to cover hopefully a lot of it. But have this mind among yourselves, notice, to the church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's where we start today then. Two points today with massive application regarding the incarnation. The first one is this. The incarnation, as we renew our minds in this truth, it leads us to understand this. It is a mind-boggling humility. The incarnation is a mind-boggling or mind-blowing or mind-exploding humility. So verse 5 launches us into the glory of the incarnation as it takes us now to verses 6 and 7. And this is a humility. In verses 6 and 7, this is a humility demonstrated by the Son of God that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but we have to try because it produces worship within us. And one of the things we need to do as we come to verses 6 and 7, we must understand as Christ came to earth, we first must think about what Christ left behind. What did he leave behind in order to come to earth? Because before the incarnation, think, 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 God the Son existed eternally in perfect harmony and fellowship and mutual love within the Trinity. The triune God eternally existing in a glorified state with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Consider then the impact of Philippians 2 verse 6 now, which says, Who though Christ, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now what does this mean? There's, there's so much here. What's critical to understand in verse 6 is the difference between personal equality of Christ and positional equality as it relates to Jesus. I'll say those two terms again. The difference between personal equality of Christ relating to the Godhead and positional equality of Christ relating to the Godhead. Let's make this very, very clear. When Jesus leaves heaven, he does not surrender his deity. Jesus Christ has always been and will always be fully God. Rather, when Jesus leaves the glories of heaven to subject himself as a human being on earth, what he does do is he relinquishes his positional equality with God. So he's still fully God in person. But he relinquishes, relinquishes part of his position with God. So he was willing to leave heaven and subject himself to us as humans. Which means then he left perfect glory to endure sinful man. And the moment he is willing to endure his own creation and the sinfulness of man, that means he is subjecting himself to be mocked, ridiculed, and killed. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, this is the humility we see as he leaves pre-incarnate glory. He gives up the divine right to be free from abuse and suffering. Because obviously, the Trinity, the Godhead, in the perfect glories of heaven, they're not subject to any of that. It's perfect. It's beautiful. There is no sin there. When Jesus Christ decides to come, he gives up his divine right to be free from any kind of sin against him, abuse, or suffering upon his life. See, this is when you start to understand, like, wait, wait, he came to earth? And you, what he left, pre-incarnate glory for me. Here's a chart that we've used several times before. I love this too. This is one of my favorite doctrines in scripture. This is the work of Jesus Christ. Hopefully some of you, this is review for you. I want you to see this here. I want you to see the pattern when Jesus Christ came. He left pre-incarnate glory. This is what we're talking about right here in Philippians 2, 5, 6, and 7. We're starting to see this process. When he leaves pre-incarnate glory, he allows himself to come to earth. This is the incarnation. You have to understand the reality and the humiliation of what Jesus Christ did, being God himself, taking on flesh. From the incarnation then, see, the incarnation never stops here. It necessitates that Jesus live a life now that he might fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 
that he lives a perfect life without sin, that he can be our substitute, our sacrifice, that he can take on the punishment for our sins. But notice, the incarnation necessitates the crucifixion. It guarantees the moment he leaves glory, he must die. The moment he's born, he's born to die. So it's not just that he came and took on flesh. That's bad enough. But that he lived and he subjected himself to learn and to be fed and then to learn language and to grow in wisdom and stature, but then also to, to, to die. Notice what ultimately, this is, for, are you here today and you're saved in Christ? Are you today or not saved in Christ? This is why Christmas is the turning point in history. The moment he enters the earth, he is doing a downward path to swoop down. He lowers himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2 and 8 and 9 and 10, that he might swoop down, pick us up at the cross, and he will ascend to heaven, and we will soon one day be with him in all glory. But it starts here to here. This is the starting point. This is the marvel of that first Christmas night. This is when the sun began to shine in the darkness. This is when hope began to be felt. Because this is when the one who would come to die for you and me, that we have a chance at all of eternal life by faith and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. It's the one, it says again in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, God himself did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He relinquished his position because he loved us so much. He never ever lost his personal equality. But again, he did relinquish his position. You can think about it this way too, right? God the Father was never spit upon. God the Father was never falsely accused. God the Father was never beaten. God the Father was never crucified. So in this sense, loved one, the Father is greater than the Son. In that sense. Jesus says himself in John 14, verse 28, the Father is greater than me. But what he's talking about is what we're talking about right now. They're both fully God. But in the sense that the Son subjected himself to such punishment, torture, and treatment that put him at a lower position, yet fully all the time maintaining his perfection in the Godhead. It's, it's just, this is the part that just hurts our brains, but to the glory of God. It should cause to results in our lives a greater sense of worship and gratitude. The very fact that God the Son was willing to leave pre-incarnate glory was an unfathomable act and demonstration of love. It is truly a mind-boggling humility. And right now what I want you to see right here is that Jesus Christ did this in the motivation of love for you. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave. For God so loved, insert your name, he gave his only son. He gave. A mind-boggling, mind-blowing humility. The incarnation is the infinite illustration of Jesus taking the lower seat. Jesus taking the lower seat. You know, how many times have we gotten into a car and we fight over who gets shotgun? Shotgun, 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 me shotgun. All the kids that do that and adults. <laughs> and it's amazing how we're just so caught up in the higher position of importance and status and, and the shotgun reference in a car is, is, is lived out in, in, in innumerable ways in our lives and society. Me, 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 me. First, first, first. Front of the line. In the place. Recognition. And then we look at the Christmas story and we see Jesus Christ himself through the incarnation. Again, the infinite illustration of taking the lower seat. And why does he do this? Because he loves us so much. I I implore us this season to take some extra time to sit, maybe even right now, to sit, to be still, to stare, and to say, and to say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your humility that has allowed me to live. Thank you for your humility of incomprehensible fashion that you would cause yourself 
to be brought so low and so meek and treated so badly. And you did not obliterate those in front of you, but you willingly laid down your life and died on the cross, which all began in that first Christmas evening, day, morning, that we might be saved. Take the time to say thank you. You know, within the Christmas story, Simeon, but then right after Simeon, there's Anna. And Anna was told, went to the temple day and night through fasting and prayer and worship. Said she was very old. Some scholars estimate she was over 100 years old. And there she was. You know what she was doing? And it was just after Jesus came to the temple. Simeon's there. Simeon says, now I can die. I've seen the Lord. And then it talks about Anna. And Anna, she says, she was giving thanks and telling all the people she could see. You can look at it in Luke 2. Telling all the people about the redemption that was coming to Israel through Jesus Christ. Awesome. I think we need a little more Anna in us, don't you? A little more Anna at the temple day and night, worshiping, fasting, and praying, and giving thanks. And giving thanks. Giving thanks to the one. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, it's so interesting. Have this mind among yourselves. So in this sense, we want this. In this sense, loved ones, front of the line. Front of the line for the mind of Christ. Uh, That's mine. What is? The mind of Christ. Um, I want that because that's mine. That belongs to me and every other person who is alive in Jesus Christ. Um, That's mine. Um, I want what? what? I want the mind of Christ. Take what's yours, the Bible says today, the mind of Christ. Because ironically, when we want what's ours, the mind of Christ, it causes us to uh, think on and dwell upon the humility of Jesus Christ that makes us become less and him become more. So that's mine. What you're really asking for, though, is that which causes you to become less and that which causes Jesus Christ to be glorified through your life. Have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, church. Harvest Oakville. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in in Christ Jesus. But look at verse 7 now. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now notice the first phrase there, emptied himself. That phrase alone has sparked tremendous debate over centuries as to what this really means. And the question that naturally arises from this translation, and there are many different translations kind of saying the same thing, but the question that arises when you see emptied himself is, what did Jesus empty himself of? The Greek word for empty is kenosis. And this has led to what is called the kenosis theory. Now the kenosis theory, which by the way is false, a false theory, and a false teaching. It does teach this though. When Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of certain divine attributes. So the kenosis theory would teach that Jesus on earth gave up things like his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. They would argue that as he became man, he not only relinquished a position, but he relinquished some of the attributes of the person of the Godhead. What we must understand, though, and hold to at all costs by truth, is there's no, it's impossible for Jesus ever to become less God. He's fully God. You can't become less than fully God. If you're God, you're God. Jesus was God. So through the incarnation then, the deity of Christ was not subtracted, listen carefully, rather, the humanity of Christ was added. I'll say that again. Through the incarnation, the deity of Christ was not subtracted in one percentage point, but the humanity of Christ was what was added to him. So just think of this illustration. Think of a king, a king who is reigning on his throne, holds all the authority, all the power. He steps down from his throne. He puts, takes off his, his, his kingly robes. He puts on robes of a peasant, and he goes and walks within the other people, seemingly like all the rest of them. His, his appearance looks like it has changed, but all the authority is still his. He's still king. All the control is still his. All the power is still, he's still the king. Just because he changed his clothes and took on a different kind of appearance does not change his authority, does not change his person. 
This is what Christ did. The king came down from his throne. I remember the part of that song, it says, what kind of king leaves his throne? What kind of king leaves his, leaves his glory? I just love that phrase. What kind of king leaves his glory to die? What other religion teaches such a thing? What other faith-based anything has a God who is willing to step down from his throne and glory, not only to live among those whom he created, but to die by the hands of those he has created? Amen to the question, what kind of king leaves his throne? An awesome king, a loving king, a gracious king, a merciful king, a generous king, an unfathomable king filled with incomprehensible humility. That's the kind of king that leaves his throne in glory to die for those whom he has created. No deity subtracted, just humanity that was added. The, the incomprehensible humility in the incarnation and the Christmas story. Here's my um, Christmas hymn words. I wonder if you can tell which Christmas hymn this is from. This will be a tricky one for many of you. It's one that we may not sing so much. Anyone, anyone know what it is yet? It's from uh, Once in Royal David's City. So, um, he came down to earth from heaven. You know, I sing this a lot as a kid. But notice, okay, he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. This is, this is the humility, possibly me half singing it's taking away from the power. So maybe I should stop doing that, okay? So, who is God and Lord of all, and his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. Like, really? Really? Uh, with the poor and meek and lowly, lived on earth, our Savior holy, emptied himself in the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, thank you. Maybe on behalf of just even the church right now, Jesus, we love you so much. You are so beautiful and so awesome. You are so good. You are so kind to us. We deserve death and hell and punishment. We are such wretched sinners, so wicked in all our hearts every day, and yet you love us so. And you came to earth to live and die and be raised from the dead that we might live. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. On behalf of, again, this, this, this body which you have redeemed and you have sealed and you have gathered as your own that we one day will see you face to face. I just, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us more than ever to live with a reverence and an awe and a worship that is worthy your name and do, and do your glory. Amazing. Amazing. And on that note of what the incarnation should lead to, Jared Wilson, he said this, and I saw this quote this week. I wanted you to see it again. It's a little bit of terms in here, and it can be a little hard to follow, but let's try together, okay? When he says this, when we put our minds long to the idea of Jesus being 100% God and simultaneously 100% man, they naturally feel overwhelmed, okay? So we're feeling a little bit better about that, okay? The orthodox doctrine of the incarnation is compelling, beautiful, biblically sensible and salvifically necessary but it is nevertheless utterly inscrutable you can't fully solve it in your head i love this and that's okay because in the end the incarnation is not for analysis ultimately but for worship amen i'm gonna clap for that we clap for that amen Thank you for clapping for some of the best parts of the message. I really appreciate it because it's true. I mean, that, if you get that, you get it all. You get it all. You, you wake up each day this week and you're not necessarily worried about the shopping malls. You're just like, where's my Savior? I can just tell him how awesome he is again. And you're taking the opportunity of the season and you're leading your family and you're telling your friends and you're burdened for the lost. God help us. God help us. Look at verse 7 again. By taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. This, this is the mind-boggling humility continuing. One of the ways that this phrase, taking the form of a servant, like almost every commentary I read this week, kind of apply this example right away. 
One of the ways this is so beautifully summarized and exemplified is John 13. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And the text says in John 13, and notice the parallels from Philippians 2. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he began to wash his disciples' feet. I mean, the beauty and the astounding humility of this moment in the light of the incarnation is incomprehensible to me. The towel was reserved for the slave. Like the lowest of the low. The, the, the bottom of the totem pole. The disciples would never dream of taking up the towel and washing each other's feet. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even think about doing that. They're too proud. That's for the slave. But then the, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, rises up from the table lays aside his garments and takes up a towel and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. The very Son of God. You know, the disciples would not fully understand what was taking place. But listen, at some point they would. Was it after Jesus died and, and ascended to heaven after raising? I don't know, but at some point, you've got to imagine Peter, James, and John... The other guys, that, that they're lying in bed one night and they're just thinking all of a sudden the, the thought connects, the truth connects of what took place in the upper room that night and maybe they, 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 they shoot out of bed, they, they sit right up and they're just eyes wide and, and their mouth declares openly, they're like, God, wash my feet. And in wonder and awe, could it be that the Lord of the universe stooped down to wash my feet? It had to have hit them at some point. But even greater than that is this. The Son of God died for my sins. Which every one of us here right now, as children of God, can state with the same unfathomable expression of gratitude and love and adoration to Him. The mind-blowing humility of the Son of God. Incomprehensible. And then notice verse 7, it says that he was born in the likeness of men. Alistair Begg, he, he says this, he says, rather than asking the question, um, this question, rather than asking this question, of what did Jesus empty himself of? The better biblical question, he says, is asking this question. What did he empty himself of? in two. So rather than saying, of what did Jesus empty himself of? Rather, what did Jesus empty himself into? And he emptied himself into the flesh of men, being born in the likeness of men. Again, Alistair Begg, he continued, he said, Jesus did not approach the incarnation asking, what's in it for me and what do I get out of it? In coming to earth, he said, Jesus said, I don't matter. But Jesus, you're going to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter, Jesus said. Jesus, you will have nowhere to lay your head. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you will be an outcast and a stranger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, they will nail you to a cross and your followers will all desert you. And Jesus says, that's okay. This is what it means that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Verse 5, our hinge verse, points us forward to the incomprehensible humility and the mind-boggling reality of what Jesus Christ did and gave for us. But what we do with verse 5 now as our hinge, as we saw the door of life Jesus Christ, now we go to how it relates to us in verses 2, 3, and 4. And this takes us to point number 2 then, the incarnation, a mind-renewing example. A mind-renewing example. There's so much here. There's so much here. You know, this week, and obviously, in many ways right now, I'm literally overwhelmed by all this truth. I was just overwhelmed by God's Word, overwhelmed by... Jesus and his beauty, overwhelmed by how much you're kind of seeing in this text, and you 
you know, so much. You know what happens to me, loved ones? Like, you're in study, and you're there, and you're praying, and you're going through God's word. I just, Lord, like, sometimes I think I'm in these moments, and God, I just, I feel so blessed and so satisfied to spend this time with you and to feel so close to you, but I'm just like, beg God that you would be able to share the same. I can't do that, though. I can't transfer what I'm seeing, or I can't make it happen. But God's Holy Spirit can, and I just want you to know how much I long for you to see the things that I and others see, and just because it just, it's, it's the beauty and the profundity is, it's literally overwhelming. So verse 5 points us forward, but now it points us backwards. Why? That we might know how to think and live as true Christ followers. Here's what I, I want you to see. Something I saw this week I was really excited about. Look at this little chart here on the screen as it pertains to our hinge verse of verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here it points forward to Jesus. So this is the mind of Jesus Christ, a mind of selflessness we saw in verse 6. A mind of submission. I'm a mind of servanthood, taking the form of a servant. But, but notice this was our hinge verse in, in verse 5. Now we're going to see here selflessness. But verse 3 says to us as the church, do nothing from selfless ambition or vain conceit. Notice the connection, a form of submission or significance with others. Count others more significant than yourselves. A mind of servanthood. Uh, verse 4 says, I look also, not only to your ears, but also to the interests of others. So all of this surrounding here, have this mind among yourselves. So have this mind of you becoming less serving others because the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. But the example of Jesus Christ spurs us on to see this reality within our lives as well. Here's where the incarnation gets so practical and so beautifully practical, yet so transformational. You know, as we go into verses 2 to 4, I wonder how many here right now are longing for joy and, and relational blessing this Christmas. So probably every single one of us in some way, we're just, we're longing for that. I wonder for how many of us, on the other hand, may be dreading Christmas or walking in with some form of apprehension. You know, regardless if you're looking forward to Christmas and longing for the joy, you're dreading Christmas and you're fearing what may be, here's what all of us need to see. Here's how all of us need to think. If you want a guaranteed blessed Christmas, no matter where you are, who you're with, then we are called to take on the mind of Christ. How do we take on the mind of Christ? Well, first of all, we take on a mind of, of selflessness. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So this is, this is the week of Christmas right now. It's a it's an important time in many different ways, specifically relationships and all the things that are going on. Loved ones, what we're learning right here is we have the mind of Christ. We have a mind of selflessness. When we have a mind of selflessness, listen, we win. It feels like we lose, but we actually win. The more we decrease, the more we experience the power and the love and the joy of Jesus Christ within our lives. Again, it feels like we lose, but we win. I implore you, as I'm trying to exhort my own heart and mind and life this week, walk into Christmas determined to be selfless. Spouses, be selfless with one another. You won't lose. You're like, oh no, man, my wife, she'll take advantage of me. Trust the Lord with that. Trust the Lord with that. You don't know my husband. He's such a jerk sometimes. You trust the Lord with that. You, you, you do what Christ says and you win. It doesn't mean it's easy. But you win. It's called the will of God. Kids, be determined for selflessness. Friends, be determined for selflessness. Because with selflessness, we win. You know one of the great ways that you know that you're selfless and growing in humility, one of the single greatest fruits that you know this is happening in your life is gratitude. Because the grateful person understands how much they've been given and granted by Christ, and therefore they don't need other thing. They're not looking for what's in it for them because they already know how good they have it. Gratitude is so powerful. Let me ask you, when you open a gift in the next couple of days, Lord willing, you're getting some kind of, I mean, it's amazing to see you open a gift and in, inside your mind, you're like, is that it? And on the outside, you're like, thanks. But in your mind, you're like, oh, I wanted something. I mean, that just, it's like, give yourself a smack on your face. 
All right? That's ingratitude. Look at the manger. Uh, look Look at your Savior. Look at his face and say, is that it? It won't happen if you see him clearly. It's impossible. You look at him and you'll fall on your knees. Seeing the night divine. Take a mind of selflessness. Remember, remember, Paul Tripp says, the DNA of sin is selfishness. Like the very DNA of our sin is selfishness. And so the DNA of Christ in our minds and our lives is selflessness. Secondly, do this. Take on a mind of submission. Take on a mind of submission. Look at verse 3 again. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's very, very interesting and beautiful, isn't it? When we believe in submission, essentially we believe in the significance of others around us. Oh, that this time, this season, we will be able to count others more significant than ourselves and believing that Christ will bring us joy in the process. Think of how a world just doesn't do this like hardly ever. To count others more significant than ourselves. A few things you can do this week. You can talk less, listen more. To count others more significant than yourself. You can expect less and love more. To count others more significant than yourself. You can judge less and pray more. As a way of counting others more significant, we go on and on and on and on. This is the mind of Christ in us. It's a mind of submission. It's a mind of loving others because we believe they are more significant than us. And then thirdly, the application here is take on a mind of servanthood. So selflessness, submission, and servanthood. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know what's so powerful and sometimes strangely fun is to walk into a situation and say to yourself, as I walk into this situation, I'm going to be a servant maniac. Like you just decide, like you have a resolve. How many of you are walking to family gatherings this week, walking into work settings, walking into friends, whatever it might be, walking into situations, like to walk into a situation, walking into church and saying today, I'm going to be a servant maniac. Can you imagine the heads that you might turn, especially for some of us who have that DNA of sin, like fully functioning? And family members would be like, what in the world is with Joe? Look at him. He's like emptying the dishwasher. He's cleaning dishes. He's changing diapers. Never seen him do that ever before. Wouldn't that be awesome? And you're doing it not so people say, man, look at you. You're great. No, no, no. You're doing it because it's a way to love people because you have the mind of Christ. And because you believe, in the end, it's better off that way of you becoming less than if you had everyone serving you. Resolve to be a servant maniac this week and see how the Lord uses that in your life and see the impression that makes upon other people. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Can you imagine if our church had this mind? Like I'm praying we do increasingly, but can you imagine each and one of us took up this mind of Christ? The incarnation, a mind-boggling humility, a mind-renewing example. It renews our minds. This is why then, loved ones, all of this is found at the root of the incarnation. This is why every person truly touched by Christmas will never be the same again. Have you truly been touched by Christmas? Have you truly seen the child in the manger who's the son of God to die for your sins? If you truly have seen the Christ child and you know who he is, that he offers you eternal life, he offers you to take away your sin and you get his right. If you've truly seen him, you cannot stay the same. Truly seen him. But you have to see more than a child. You must see the son of God. Let me end this message with this here. Malachi 4 verse 2. This has been a verse that has meant a lot to me over the past couple of weeks. In some ways, this is a Christmas verse you may not be aware of. Malachi 4.2 says, But for you who fear my name, 
Notice, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This is Christmas. You say, where is Christmas in this? The son of righteousness is Jesus Christ. The son of righteousness is the one who is sent to earth, and then for the first time, the light is truly shining in the dark. I saw a beautiful sunrise. I saw a beautiful sunrise this week. I actually was in Louisville for a couple of days this week, and I was out walking in this kind of rural part of that city, and it was cold and dark. But then you saw the sun come, and I thought of this right away. As the sun comes up, the hope that is there, the sun of righteousness, notice the healing that it brings because when Jesus Christ comes, he comes to break people free from sin and death and Satan and slavery. He heals us from our greatest fears and our greatest problem, our sin. And no wonder then you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Think of a calf tied in a stall unable to get free, but then the gate is open and the exuberance and the youthful glee of a calf dancing and jumping and leaping with joy. That's the impact of the incarnation. Why? Because light over darkness, healing over death, and joy over despair only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why then Christmas is so awesome. Because Christmas is when the sun begins to shine and the hope is felt for the first time and the rays of his warmth come on our face. And then we begin to see again, this is why I live and this is why I'm here. Light, the hope, the joy. I love it, the healing that is found in the wings of the Savior of the world. Maybe you're here today and the Lord wants to heal you once and for all. Maybe you're here today, and today is your day to put your faith and trust and life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be healed from your sin, healed from your misery, healed from your pain, and healed from your hurt. Oh, may it be so. All these answers are found in Jesus, no one else, no one else, only by him. That's why he came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose from the dead. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word and your faithfulness. Thank you for answered prayer. Thank you, Lord, for renewing our minds. Thank you for being so generous to us when we deserve nothing. Thank you for reaching down. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for your grace. Thank you. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, at the end of the day, more than an analysis of the incarnation, it is leading us to worship. That's the end goal. That's the purpose, and I pray you would help us to do that uh, even now. Oh, God, protect this church, I pray. Please protect this church, and may you make this week right now and this week coming up one of the greatest weeks we've ever had for the purpose of salvation and righteousness in Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen.